Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello there, my name is Neil Vickers and I'm a professor of English in the English department here at King's and I'm also the co-director of the Centre for the um, Humanities and Health. And the first thing I'd like to say is how sorry I am to be giving this lecture remotely. I'd much rather be able to engage with you face to face. Uh, I'd also like to thank Professor Claire Carlyle and all of the team um, responsible for the Associateship of King's College Lectures. Um, so I'm going to talk about mental health and the culture of the self in literature and psychology. Mental health is a very modern idea. It first emerged in the second half of the 18th century, when the learned classes of Europe began talking about selfhood as something that could be studied systematically. Before then, people were of course familiar with mental disturbances of various kinds, with melancholy, with mania, with madness. But these states would always have been seen as epiphenomena of something wrong with the body. And this, I think, is hugely important, and it's very difficult for many people in our era to grasp that the, the biological view of madness and of mental disturbance more generally has dominated Western thinking all the way up to about 1880. Um, psychology is very recent. So I want to talk about this change that I believe occurred in the late 18th century and that made it possible in Western Europe at least to think about mental health as something distinct from physical health. This was an extraordinary moment when the history of literature became linked with the history of psychology. So I'm going to talk about 18th century psychology, how it was taken up by medical men, how these medical men reinforced their early psychological intuitions through literature, and why it came about that in the 19th century, men like Maudsley and Connolly thought that Shakespeare offered the first really important account of psychiatric classification, bardolatry as it used to be known. So what was so modern about the concept of mental health? Well, I think two differences are especially relevant. The first was the idea that childhood experience could shape the development of the mind in subtle and far-reaching ways. And I'm going to talk about that um, in more detail later on in this lecture. 
so childhood experience. The second was the idea of the inner life. I don't think that we really find people talking about the inner life distinct from the outer life until the 18th century. So it's really Rousseau who begins it. Uh, Rousseau tells us that the inner life is lived invisibly, even ineffably. The inner life is more important than the outer life because it's the source of all the self's strengths. In extremis, it might be said that the power of the inner life is defined by its ability to free itself from any reference to fact. So one of the reasons why so many romantic writers and romantic theorists found Napoleon fascinating was that his military conquests were taken as a sign of an immense inner life. Poet Bonaparte, Coleridge wrote in 1802, layer out of a world garden. It was often suggested by romantic writers that the inner life is not directly accessible to ordinary consciousness. The following lines by Wordsworth from the 1799 prelude make the point clearly enough. For many days my brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. In my thoughts there was a darkness, call it solitude or blank desertion. No familiar shapes of hourly objects, images of trees, of sea or sky. No colours of green fields, but huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men moved slowly through my mind by day and were the trouble of my dreams. It's an absolutely fascinating passage, I think. You have a sense that great claims are being made here about the nature of mental experience, and yet it's hard, I think, to put one's finger on exactly what those claims are. One of the most interesting controversies to arise in the Romantic period concerned the significance that could be claimed for the outer life. And something very, very interesting happened when successive biographers started writing the life of the Scottish poet Robert Burns. And of course, what they discovered was that he led a completely scandalous life. He was fond of a drink, shall we say. He fathered numerous children out of wedlock and even abandoned his wife when he was pregnant. And Wordsworth said, the facts of Burns's life were irrelevant. Burns had, and I'm quoting him here, reared a poetical character upon his human one. His poems were his true monument, not his actions in the world, because they with the record of his inner life. Now, this valorization of the inner life meant that a culture based on character, in which individuals were taken to be who they said they were, gave way to one based on personality, in which a biographical subject was assumed to be a mystery even to himself or herself. Now, just think about that for a moment. If selfhood is so obscure, so recondite a topic, doesn't it require a great deal of literary and artistic creativity to get at it?
Goethe, when he was writing his autobiography, Dichtung und Wahrheit, which appeared in 1811, said his aim in writing his autobiography and his aim in becoming a poet was mich selbst auszubilden, to build myself up. And this, in turn, facilitated the emergence of a special category of autobiographical text, the Bildungsroman. Um, again, think of the number of Bildungsroman that come out in all the European languages, but really starting with Rousseau's Confessions, which appeared between 1781 and 1788 in serial form. Um, what they all have in common is that there was a deep mystery about their selfhood, about their inner lives, if you like, and the task of the biography, the autobiography, I should say, was to characterise that mystery, if not to solve it. So over the last 20 years, um, there's been a great deal of scholarly writing on the origins of modern selfhood. So there have been major studies by Gerald Zeigel, Charles Taylor and Dror Wahlmann, for instance. And they say, really, before the 1780s, people used the word self, um, but they began using it in a different way. First of all, under the impact of progress in the natural sciences in particular, the idea of individuality became conjoined with the idea of development. Earlier in the century, individuality had been connected with quiddities or essences. So, for instance, if you think about um, Roman biographies, um, say Plutarch's lives, for instance. Plutarch might tell you about Julius Caesar, and he would tell you about the actions that epitomised Julius Caesar in his public life. Wouldn't really tell you about his childhood. And if you look at biographical writings in the 18th century, you start to see childhood entering the picture. But fundamentally, people have fixed essences for most biographical writers before Rousseau. So Rousseau, in his Confessions, um, which were actually written between 1765 and 1770, and then he waited 12 years <laughs> before they appeared, um, he, Rousseau tried to uncover the sources of his own character by discovering its foundations in childhood experiences. Many of you, perhaps, even as I'm uttering these words, are reciting Wordsworth's lines, the child is the father of the man. So Rousseau is the first to say, look, childhood sufferings and childish mis misunderstandings have a determining effect on adult life. And Rousseau says, if you want to understand my failings, look at my childhood, look at my youth. Yes, I may have given my children away to an orphanage, but that was partly because I was deprived of love 
as a child. Rousseau was also the first writer to suggest that the natural world, immersing yourself in nature, taking up botany, for instance, could compensate for some of the things that go wrong in childhood. Now, there was another writer, far less well-known than Rousseau, and here I should acknowledge Matthew Bell in the German department, who wrote a wonderful book called The German, the, the German Psychological Tradition, who introduced me to this man. And the man in question is Karl Philipp Moritz, who lived from 1756 to 1793. And Moritz had this extraordinary idea. He wanted to edit a journal devoted almost entirely to first-hand accounts of mental disturbances that would be sent in by the professional classes of Germany, and then he would publish them pretty much without editing and certainly without no censorship. And all sorts of people participated, Goethe, Moses Mendelssohn, um, they agreed with Moritz that it would be great to found this new field of study, which Moritz gave the name Erfahrung Seelenkunde, the study of mental experience. Um, and so, as I say, Mendelssohn, Lessing, Goethe, Schiller, were all associated with Moritz's magazine, as well as lots of eminent German medical men. And again, Moritz, because he was writing in the shadow of Rousseau's confessions, urged his contributors to talk about their childhoods. Now, it was quite extraordinary, because really, before Moritz's magazine, um, we didn't really know what ordinary subjectivity was like. How much ordinary paranoia there was, for instance. I mean, they wouldn't have used that word paranoia, which actually dates, I think, from the early 20th century or the late 19th. Um, and so Moritz, anyway, published more than a hundred case histories. Um, and uh, they were thought of as psychological case histories. When Moritz published his own autobiography, he called it Ein psychologischer Roman, a psychological novel. So, uh, straight away, uh, I think people recognised um, that the magazine represented something very special. Um, one commentator says uh, it was the first serious attempt to throw light on some of the murkiest recesses of 18th century life, especially the, uh, the area of personality disorder and the psychoses, where previously nothing but superstition and violence had held sway. Richard Hunter and Ida McAlpine, in their classic source book, of the prehistory of psychiatric thought from 1535 to 1860, called Moritz's Magazine 
the first psychiatric journal. It's very, very interesting. Um, so you're probably itching to see a specimen of the type of case history that found its way into Moritz's magazine. Um, in their eighth volume, the editors of the magazine invited readers to write in with their experiences of hypochondria. Among the descriptions they received was the following. On the 14th of November, the idea that someone wanted to kill me sprang up suddenly and involuntarily in my mind. And yet I must confess there was no reason I should have harboured this thought, for I am convinced no one ever formed such a cruel design against me. People who had a stick in their hands I looked on as murderers. As I walked out of the town, a countryman happened to follow me, and I was instantly filled with the greatest apprehension and stood still to let him pass. I asked the fellow in a threatening voice and with a view of intimidating him from his purpose, what was the name of the town that lay before us? The man answered my question and walked on, and I found great relief because he was no longer behind me. Here's another one. In the evening, I found water remaining in the glass out of which I commonly drink, and I instantly believed it was poisoned. I therefore carefully washed it out, and yet I knew at the same time that I myself had left the water in it. Another one. 18th of November. The effects of the nuptial embrace on my mind gradually grow more singular, insupportable and dangerous. It is not that I find myself weakened by it. On the contrary, I always find myself at first lighter, more cheerful and better disposed for scientific inquiry. I also observe that I have much happier and wittier thoughts than any other. But alas, this state of mind and body does not last for long. For such moments of connubial tenderness, I afterwards pay dearly by long-lived days of mental inquietude. Anxiety. Dreadful anxiety seizes me if a person overlooks my hand at cards, or if a person sits down beside me, if I am playing the harpsichord, etc. Now, it so happens that the person who introduced Moritz's work into England was a man I like to call Coleridge's GP. His name was Dr Thomas Beddoes. He had a famous son, Thomas Lovell Beddoes, uh, who killed himself, um, who was a poet and a doctor. But Thomas Beddoes Sr. was a remarkable man by any standard. He was one of the first translators of Kant into English. He also um, owned many copies and wrote reviews of Goethe, Schiller, Lessing, all sorts of major German writers. And Beddoes was the man who sent Coleridge to Germany. Um, Coleridge went to Germany in 1798 with Wordsworth and Wordsworth's sister. And he studied German for a year. And thereafter, as many of you will know, he came back to England and was probably the most important exponent of German thinking 
in Britain. Um, Coleridge, Carlyle, George Eliot, these people were giants of Germanistic, that is to say, of German culture. So Coleridge stands on the shoulders of Beddoes, and we know that Beddoes owned a complete run of Moritz's magazine, and we know that Coleridge had the run of Beddoes' library. So Beddoes himself published a medical periodical between 1802 and 1803, and um, he devoted a particular, the last two essays of his periodical, the last two numbers, to mental disturbances. And I'm suggesting, if it isn't already clear, that Beddoes is using the idea of mental illness in a freestanding way. He's talking about mental illness as something that might not be rooted in bodily derangement. So he starts off from the idea that the inner lives of most sane people were always somewhat detached from reality. So if you think our friend who is worried that anyone walking down the street with a walking stick might be a murderer is mad, Beddoes says, certainly not. This is what the psychic lives of most people are like. And they're not very sociable, these psychic lives, because they contain a great deal of hostility of which we feel ashamed. Now, it's not yet the theory of Freudian repression. It's much more um, what the German sociologist Norbert Elias would call trained in capacity. So Beddoes, in the 10th essay of his medical periodical, which was called Hygieia, quotes a case history, which he found in a book published by Charles um, Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin. It's a very famous book published in 1794. It's called Zoonomia, or The Laws of Animal Life. And Beddoes was a close friend of Erasmus Darwin. And indeed, he sent Coleridge to go and meet Erasmus Darwin. Erasmus Darwin had hugely, had a huge impact on the early Romantic poets. In Erasmus Darwin's case history, a most elegant lady is said suddenly to have become melancholy, and yet not to so great a degree that she could command herself to do the honours of her table with grace and apparent ease. After many days' entreaty, she at length told the author, that is Erasmus Darwin, that she thought her marrying her husband had made him unhappy, though it was a love match on both sides, and that this idea she could not efface from mind day or night. In Erasmus Darwin's original account, this idea is described as an example of an insane hallucination. That's Darwin's term. And he suggests that she should go on a long sea voyage with the expectation that the sickness, along with the change of objects, 
might remove it. So the idea is she can get on a boat somewhere, get seasick, and the seasick will dislodge the illness that is the ultimate cause of her insane hallucination. So you see, Erasmus Darwin has a biological view of the mind, a purely biological view of the mind. He doesn't believe in mental health as something distinct from physical health. And he doesn't believe in mental illness as something distinct from physical illness. Beddoes, on the other hand, says, look, there is a common human capacity to lay ourselves in thrall to a single interesting fact. From a small germ of fact, there shoots out in a moment an extensive ramification and luxurious foliage of imaginations, all equally distinct to the mind with the first perception. All sorts of people who appear to be sane, Beddoes says, and remember this woman could command herself to do the honours at her table with grace, grace and apparent ease. So, you know, she seems perfectly sane. But like many people who appear to be perfectly sane, she is in fact a slave to a single interesting idea. And Beddoes says, look, we need to study secret passions, vague, dreamy states, because these detach people from the world around them. And if left unchecked, they can make them mad. Beddoes says again and again that if you want to know what the inner life of the average person is like, go and read Moritz' Erfahrung Seelenkunde, study of psychological experience or mental experience. No medical attendant, writes Beddoes, or philosophical spectator could so completely have delineated the various busy scenes represented before the mind. Beddoes quotes one of Moritz's case histories, and this was sent in by a physician who had become delirious during a fever. And so while he had this fever, he removed himself into an apartment. He removed himself into an apartment different from that in which he usually slept. The fantasy that persecuted him most was his inability to persuade himself that he was in his own house at all. The pain of this persuasion excited continual efforts and trains of thought. He seemed transported from street to street, and his imagination was active enough every moment to exhibit to him some different public space in which his guards detained him on his bed. All the time, his fancy created places not the most agreeable for his residence. Sometimes it pitched him between two walls, so close that he could not heave an arm, sometimes on a burial ground, sometimes on a court before the, pub, before the hospital he attended. A postillion's horse or even the watchman would transport him to a public place filled with music and dancing, the neighing of a horse in the street to a stable, 
the bad smell of his perspiration or the blood coagulated in his nostrils to a burying ground. When the physician in attendance consented to his removal into the wished-for apartment, on the score of there being nothing to lose, his whole internal feelings underwent an instantaneous revolution. Though he had lain for days and nights without sleep, raving, supplicating and complaining, a placid sleep, the forerunner of a rapid recovery, overtook him in ten minutes. Now here again, the power of a single idea is what is most in point. Once the patient was allowed to sleep in his, un in his usual apartment, he was released from his delirious dreams. Now, there were at least four other areas where Beddoes drew inspiration from the German psychological tradition. First, it gave him license to relate the signs of madness to childhood experience. Second, it enabled him to think about passion as something that could operate outside our awareness. Now that I really want you to pause at. Some of you will be thinking, hang on, in the writings, the medical writings of classical antiquity, it was commonly said that the passions of the soul would make you mad. And the passions of the soul were imagined as physical entities in the body that were disturbed. If you aroused the passions too much, you would do things to your body that shouldn't be done. Now, but they never thought about passion as unconscious. <laughs> Beddoes, you'll notice, is talking about unconscious passions. Third, it made him more committed than any other eminent British physician to the ideal that a great deal of nervous and insane pathology was psychically caused. Um, and fourth, it supplied him with fresh terms in which to formulate the classical conception of health as consisting in a balance of the inner and the outer world. So, because these interests were overlapping, the examples I shall offer may exhibit more than one of these characteristics, but I want you to bear them in mind as a totality. Now, it was not unusual for Moritz's correspondence case histories to shade off into autobiography. And almost inevitably, they would trace the root cause of this or that symptom or disposition to in events in childhood. And at this point, perhaps some of you are thinking, hang on, the educated classes of Enlightenment Europe gave unprecedented attention to childhood and that German psychological writers had no monopoly over that preoccupation. And this is true. The childhood roots of adult sorrow uh, were commented on at length by Rousseau, by Goethe, by De Quincey, Wordsworth, many other European writers. And I think it's fair to say that European society as a whole, certainly the educated part of it, 
recognised well what we would call childhood trauma. The thing is, Beddoes was minded to find the seeds of madness in much more ordinary and apparently harmless childhood experiences and made generalisations about adult insanity on the basis of these. So here he is in one of his great essays in Hygieia explaining the relationship between mania and melancholy, which were the two great diagnostic categories of 18th century mad doctors. I think it's a wonderful passage. There are certain children in whom correction or reproof is almost sure to bring on a fit of sullenness, and who, after receiving the one or the other, will stand for a considerable time as fixed as if there were only images of animated creatures. But a very trifling occasion will provoke an ebullition of the passion that is raging within. If a smaller boy happened to pass within arm's length, though without giving more offence than the wolf in the fable received from the lambs drinking lower down the stream, the young melancholic will immediately invent some cause for quarrelling and play off a maniacal paroxysm in miniature at the expense of his overmatched playfellow. Note that. Here we see, apparently in play, the movement from melancholia to mania. Thus it is, I'm going back to Beddoes now, thus it is, I think, that melancholic absorptions generate maniacal extravagancies. The storm goes on to drive for a while, and that's sometimes not a short while. But in innumerable cases, the apparently dead calm, though in reality it be a season of deep, retired, despondent and sometimes pleasurable feeling, returns to be in like manner succeeded by the hurricane in its season. A wonderful passage, I think. But notice what he's saying in it. It's quite extraordinary. He is saying that you can read off from certain routines of child's play the natural history of mental troubles. Donald Winnicott, I think, would be proud of Beddoes. To judge from um, detailed accounts that Beddoes gives of Moritz, um, he first came upon him in about 1798, but actually um, he was writing this sort of thing himself in the 1790s. In the 1790s, um, he was invited to write the um, bio biography of a very famous and rather, a rather notorious doctor called John Brown. And John Brown was um, an amateur physician um, who was a brilliant Latinist. And he made a very good living in Edinburgh translating MD theses into Latin, because you had to submit your MD thesis in Latin at the University of Edinburgh in the 18th century. And Brown is all but forgotten today, 
But in the 18th century, he had the most extraordinary followers. Erasmus Darwin was a follower of Brown, Beddoes a little bit more conditionally, but Kant, Schelling, Fichte, Novalis, these giants of European thought, described themselves as Brunonians, followers of Brown. And so um, there's a wonderful example in the moral portrait, that's Beddoe's term, that he wrote of Brown uh, preceding Brown's works. And he did this largely uh, as a mitzvah, as a good deed to provide for Brown's widow and her children. Um, and Brown clearly had a very difficult character. He grew up, he was born into a very strict Scottish Presbyterian seceder sect. And this group of people, the congregants, his fellow, uh, his co-religionists, recognised very early on that he was a bit of a genius, very, very clever. And so they all clubbed together to get the infant Brown an education because he grew up in a rural part of Scotland, or was growing up in a rural part of Scotland. And the thought was that once he attained manhood, he would become their minister. Then this happened. So they were, were talking about uh, very, very strict Calvinists. While Brown was thriving in godliness and knowledge, but at what precise period I am not informed, there occurred an incident which finally diverted him from the path he had hitherto with so much alacrity pursued. At a provincial synod of the Merce and Teviotdale, a party of his schoolfellows urged him to accompany them to the parish church at Dunce. Now, of course, that's a Church of Scotland parish church, and Brown's sect would have regarded them as heretics. Brown manifested reluctance, but yielded to their importunity and remained to hear the sermon. The scandal did not pass unnoticed. He was summoned before the session of the seceding congregation, but not choosing either to atone by an apology for his sin in mixing with profane worshippers or to wait for a formal sentence of excommunication, he abdicated his principles and professed himself a member of the establishment, that is, of the Church of Scotland. Beddoe says this, it's a wonderful line, thus bigotry is often but the mask of avarice, pride or ambition. And here, though the nature of his present zeal was a secret to the zealot himself, we see it fully disclosed by this instructive anecdote. Encouragement at first, and afterwards flattery from his brethren, seemed to have formed a strong connection between the peculiar articles of his faith and a sense of his personal importance. The moment this, quest, this connection was dissolved, an alteration of sentiment succeeded, not very much unlike that produced in Luther's mind by the offensive measure of the Pope. The opinions he had so warmly cherished lost all their value in his estimation or rather, perhaps became odious from the disgrace with which they threatened him. Unquote. 
Now, Beddoes dwells on this because he says, what happened when Brown moved to Edinburgh? He went to Edinburgh University. He was a wonderful classicist. He then became a translator to medical students for their MD theses. And he was in strong demand from the Edinburgh medical professors. And he actually moved in with probably the most famous of them, William Cullen, becoming a tutor to Cullen's children. And for some time, he and Cullen got on like a house on fire. He then um, began uh, to seek a job himself as a medical professor. And Cullen wouldn't do it. Cullen wouldn't put him forward. So he opened a boarding house where he lived very lavishly and within two or three years was declared bankrupt. And it was during this period, Beddoes says, that Brown became devoted to drink and opium and Cullen withdrew from him. Then Brown published his Opus Maximum, the elements of medicine, which attempts to show why all the Edinburgh professors were wrong in their systems of medicine, in their great nosographic encyclopedias. Really, there were just two kinds of disease, Brown said, those caused by too much stimulation and those caused by too little. Beddoes says that when he ruptured with Cullen and the other Edinburgh professors, Brown was reliving the moment in his childhood when he walked away from the seceders and joined the Church of Scotland. Here's Beddoes. Like other reformers, he committed and sustained injustice. Like them too, he gradually lost his sense of equity. His countryman Knox could scarce have exceeded him in ferocity. And thereafter, his rupture with Cullen became a source of pride. And it seems to me that here we're seeing um, something very, very interesting and uh, something that we'll find in Moritz. And I think that Beddoes probably hadn't found in Moritz uh, in 1795 when he published this. First of all, you'll notice that Brown's disputatious character can already be seen in childhood. And it's not just a disputatious character. There is a huge life event sponsored by this disputatious character leaving the seceder community. And Beddoes says that's the event he's going to repeat over and over in his life, but above all in Edinburgh Medical School. It's anachronistic, you may say, but I think we're not a million miles from what Freud called a repetition compulsion. Second, Beddoes shows a striking willingness, even in this early work, to understand character in terms of hidden passions. In this instance, pride. Brown thinks he's acting rationally, in fact, those who flatter his narcissism um, most overtly win him over. Lastly, 
Beddoes effectively sets himself up as a moral doctor to Brown, offering the reader an understanding of Brown's character that was quite beyond Brown's own reach. Just another little anecdote from Beddoes. Um, one of the things he really loved about Moritz was Moritz was telling us what actual subjectivity was like. And Beddoes calls again and again for franker discussion of sexual life. Um, he thought that epilepsy was probably caused by masturbation. And he thought that sexual fantasies, if they preoccupied the subject too much, would make him or her ill. And um, in Hygieia, he uses Thomas Sheridan's life of Dean Jonathan Swift. Um, Swift, as you may know, went mad in the end, but had was preceded by Meniere's disease, um, which is a constant ringing in the ear, and it's a disease of the inner ear. And Swift himself says, I got this because of a surfeit of fruit. In his early 20s, he ate some enormous number of apples. And these had left him, and I'm quoting Swift here now, with a giddiness and coldness of stomach that almost broke, brought me to my grave. Beddoes says, oh no, it's got nothing to do with apples. He says, let's look at this man's amorous career. This is a man who nearly gets married to three women, but in the end, he doesn't marry any of them. Strong evidence, I think as strong as circumstantial evidence can be, is to be found in the delight Swift takes in images physically impure, in the sentiments he proffered at different times regarding marriage, and above all, in his behaviour towards several women after he had attained the fullness of literary glory. That he should have engaged the affection of three women and of two by direct addresses, and that he should have escaped from one by a subterfuge, shaken off another by murderous violence, and dropped the third of the last amen of the marriage ceremony, form a difficulty in his conduct which scarcely admits of any but a physical solution. Either Swift was naturally of a temperate constitution with regard to women, and therefore was avoiding sexual contact, or, as he was afterwards so fond of keeping the embers alive, is it not infinitely more probable that the flame once burned fiercely, and that by constant habit of suppressing his desires, he at last lost the powers of gratifying them? And so, again, taking women to the altar is an extension of... I suppose, masturbation, the constant habit of suppressing his desires. But he can't do anything with it. Yet again, Beddoes converts biography into case history by means of psychological, character-based evidence. I mean, what I think is so extraordinary about this way of doing biography is that it just wouldn't have made sense even in 1750. All sorts of apparently sane act, acts become open to reinterpretation as somewhat insane. 
as part of a more comprehensive natural history of a psychophysiological disorder. In 1814, in his Life of Swift, Sir Walter Scott expressed outrage at Beddoe's essay and called for a medical man to just refute it. And William Wilde, Oscar's father, um, had Swift's corpse dug up in 1846 to perform an autopsy, but his findings were inconclusive. Um, but J.C. Bucknell, the famous alienist and a fellow of the Royal Society, um, was the first to say, actually, um, the infirmities of Swift's last days were due to labyrinthine vertigo, or Meniere's disease, caused by a build-up of fluid in the inner ear. Now, Bucknell is best remembered today for his book, Psychology of Shakespeare. And I want to conclude this lecture by suggesting that in this endeavour, he stood perhaps unwittingly on Beddoe's shoulders. It was a commonplace in the 19th century for alienists to credit Shakespeare with, in Bucknell's words, exactness of psychological knowledge. Bucknell, John Connolly and Henry Maudsley all wrote treatises on psychopathology using examples from Shakespeare's plays. On this side of the Atlantic, the grandest claims for the bard as proto-alienist were made perhaps by Maudsley, who asserted that Shakespeare furnishes in the work of creative art more valuable information about insanity than can be obtained from the vague and general statements with which science, in its present defective state, is constrained to content itself. Now, the first person to make this sort of claim for Shakespeare that I know of was Thomas Beddoes. In the last essay of Hygieia, Beddoes asserts that Shakespeare has succeeded by his happy use of machinery in carrying terror and compassion to a height which they cannot perhaps be made to reach by any other means. But it is his desponding mad Ophelia, his raving mad Lear, his jealous mad Othello, his melancholy Jaquis, his crafty mad Hamlet, that awe and attach on the first exhibition and bind the heart in a never-ceasing spell. Note all those clinical descriptions. Knowledge of Shakespeare's plays amounts to clinical knowledge for Beddoes. Now, it must be remembered that he said this in 1803, five years before August Wilhelm Schlegel made the remark that, Han that Hazlitt used as an epigraph to his characters of Shakespeare. Schlegel said that Shakespeare alone portrayed the mental diseases, melancholy, delirium, lunacy, with such inexpressible and in every respect definite truth that the physician may enrich his observations from them in the same manner as from real cases. But Beddoes goes on to make several further claims about Shakespeare's knowledge of madness that look far ahead of Schlegel. In line with the Mauritian bias of his thought, Beddoes sees Shakespeare's art as a kind of narrative therapy for the playwright. Beddoes says that in the act of writing his plays, Shakespeare was too busy delineating the workings of passion to have placed himself under its sway. It is a characteristic of all great poets, Beddoes says, that they are not merely worked up by passion, but however much they may work themselves up, they have a goal in view which hinders their thoughts from going astray. Shakespeare was not merely an accurate observer of madness in others, he was able to put something of himself in all of his mad characters, because he knew that sanity, 
was continuous with, and not simply the negation of, insanity. The sane and the insane mind are made of the same stuff, Beddoes wrote. A change in the hues and arrangement of their materials is the sole difference. This is a truly psychological claim, a claim that takes for granted the existence of mental health. And, of course, it finds its way into 19th century Shakespeare criticism through Hazlitt, through Coleridge, who, along with Schlegel, is credited with initiating the 19th century vogue for Shakespearean psychopathology. But Coleridge got it from Beddoes, and Beddoes ought to be seen as its first, if not its only, begetter. So, in conclusion, I have argued in this lecture that the idea of mental health first emerged in the closing two decades of the 18th century. I've mentioned two 18th century thinkers who exhibit the relevant changes, which I have traced to childhood experience having new importance and the idea that the inner lives of most sane people contain many mad bits. The two thinkers were Rousseau and Carl Philipp Moritz, and I've tried to show how Moritz's ideas were extended by interested medical men, but especially by Thomas Beddoes. And I've also tried to show how that completely transformed the reception of Shakespeare's works in the 19th century. I hope you found it interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.